Stem Cells at Lunch Digested is brought to you by the Centre for Stem Cells and Regenerative Medicine at King's College London. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Stem Cells at Lunch Digested podcast. We're really excited today to be joined by Matthias Lutov, who is Head of the Laboratory of Stem Cell Bioengineering at the EFPL in Switzerland. So Matthias initially trained as a materials engineer at ETH Zurich before moving to work in stem cell biology at Stanford University. He then set up his lab at the EPFL, supported by a European Young Investigator Award, and has continued to produce seminal work in the fields of stem cell bioengineering and tissue engineering. So thank you so much for joining us today, Matthias. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you. So it would be great if we could start by hearing a summary of what your research is about. Yeah, so my lab is, is trying to understand and ultimately control how stem cells build tissues in vitro. And to, to address this question and this challenge, we're using organoids, which are, I think, incredibly fascinating uh, systems that are formed by spontaneous processes by which stem cells you know, arrange themselves, differentiate, uh, renew themselves, and you end up with structures that resemble some aspects of the native tissues in remarkable uh, ways. So this is sort of what we're trying to do. And, and I think our maybe unique or, or special take on this problem is that we are using engineering approaches to try to guide in vitro development, try to guide how organoids are formed by stem cells. So two questions come from that. So firstly, why are these organoid models beneficial to what what's their kind of angle over traditional animal models or perhaps other in vitro models and secondly with kind of your engineering approach what are the questions that you're addressing that perhaps other people have overlooked before so to your first question i think the killer application the killer reason for using organoids is that we can start to build human tissues and we can start to build human diseases in a dish. We know that, uh, you know, animals are, you know, some animal models are excellent, uh, you know, models for, for human beings, but they have limitations and there are species specific differences. And organoids give us, I think, a, a new window into studying human biology and studying human development, regeneration, human diseases. And I think that is the prime reason why so many people, all the way from you know basic biology to you know real life applications in in uh, regenerative medicine or pharma, are so excited about this new model. And I think that's it's the same for us, really. I think ultimately we want to be able to study human cells in culture and human tissues. To your second um, question, why we we think that engineering tools might be interesting is because classically, you know, organoids formed by random, I would almost say random self-organization processes. So you have very little control about what the stem cells are doing when they build the tissues. The consequence of that is that you end up with tissues of different, you know, size, shape, composition, meaning that you have a tremendous heterogeneity in your culture, right? Because you lack central instructions to, to tell the cell 
how to build that tissue. In vivo, during you know, organism development, during organogenesis, you have very important instructions that are there. You have what, what biologists call signaling centers, very important factors are presented from a local source. And that basically guides the tissue to develop in, 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 in a very, let's say, controlled way. You also have uh, spatial constraints in the system. You have neighboring tissues that are there that provide a barrier. So you have all these, I would say, parameters that are there to basically make this whole process of development very robust. Now, when you, when you deprive the system from all these inputs and you put stem cells in a, in a 3D matrix where they can grow wherever they want, I think it's not surprising that you get very disorganized and heterogeneous out, outputs, right? And we think that bringing back some of these instructions by using engineering will be beneficial because we can start to control the process of, of development of more what we call morphogenesis. Right? And we have, I think, some early demonstrations that this makes sense and can, can work. So kind of keeping in that vein, so understanding kind of how the physical environment can impact the behavior of stem cells and development, what applications are there for that potentially clinically um, in understanding diseases, other examples where we know that kind of changes to the physical environment or the supporting structures around the cells can have pathological consequences. Yeah, that's an excellent question. You know, <clears throat> I think in almost all protocols that are out there and that people use, stem cells generate these cystic tissues where you have, uh, you know, single cells where it starts to proliferate and it forms this little balloon of cell that's, you know, fluid filled, right? And that itself is actually very exciting because, you know, as people like Hans Klevers uh, have, have shown, this is, can be extremely powerful to, 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 to model some diseases like cystic fibrosis, where you can measure, for instance, how these little cysts, you know, swell in response to a drug or, or don't swell because they're muta mutated. You know, and that, you know, this is already an extremely useful uh, approach and it's used, uh, you know, everywhere in the world, right? But the problem with that is you only have a limited size of the tissue that can be achieved. You know, it cannot grow much larger than, say, half a millimeter, right? And, and the other problem with that is that you cannot access the lumen or the, the inner surface, which is called the, the apical surface of the tissue, is the one that's actually physiologically extremely important because this is where you know, parasites live, where viruses, you know, microbes live, where food is taken in, you know, or drugs are exposed to the tissue. This surface is very hard to access if you have a cystic structure. You have to poke a hole through the tissue to inject something. And that's not an assay that it's easy to do. It's possible, but it's hard to do. And, you know, our engineering uh, approaches allow us to break up, to, to open up these, these, these cystic structures and make tubes. That's just one early example of our efforts. That itself uh, presents a lot of advantages because you can continuously remove, you know, dead cells, which, which increases the lifespan of the tissues, you know, by several factors. You can easily populate the epithelial tissues with microbes, for instance, 
And you can start to think about generating really large tissues, tissues that could reach the size that are relevant for human medicine. You know, for instance, you could think about building a very simple airway tube, you know, with, with organoids that when you just would grow the stem cells in, nor in a normal environment, you will never get a tube. But by using engineering, because you, you, have, you provide a scaffold along the, which the stem cells grow, you can start to really reach sizes that become relevant for, for regenerative medicine, I would say. I mean, that's, of course, a long-term vision, but I think this has to involve engineering approaches, ultimately. I don't see any other way. That, that application is incredibly exciting, the thought of being able to generate an entire organ or, you know, a considerable part of an organ in vitro that could then be used for transplantation obviously has kind of huge potential impact. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it, this is a field that's actually several decades old, right? I mean, tissue engineering has been around and has led to, to several breakthroughs. But the problem has been, I think, that people didn't figure out how to grow functional cell types. Only later, organoid technology came in. And I think now we can bring these two things together. We can use organoid forming stem cells and we can use tissue engineering to actually realize this very early vision that people had already 50 years ago. Kind of leading on from that, what do you think we need to do to get there? What are, what are we lacking in understanding perhaps to get us to that stage where we could have organs that we're able to grow in a lab that can then be used for transplantation? What are the steps that we need to do? Well, this is a very, very difficult challenge. I think the major maybe one of the major challenges is the complexity in terms of tissues that you have in an organ. You know, I mean, you can just not model an organ with one cell type, with, you know, with just the epithelium. You would need to have vasculature because of the size, you know, the, the, the limitations of getting nutrients to the cells. You would have to build in some way of delivering these uh, nutrients to the cells. And that, that means you, have, you need to vascularize them. How do you do that at the scale of a macroscopic, you know, at the centimeter scale? That's a very tough one. And then you need to be able to connect it to the host. So you need to find ways. Although I think there with IPS technology and with really autologous cells, I think we, we, we have made great progress. Um, and then, of course, there is the issue of uh, maintaining stable niches for very long periods of times. This has been something we have been interested in in the, in the small intestine to see how you can actually stabilize the creep that it starts to, 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 to be maintained at the same, same time, you know, pumps out differentiated cells stably for weeks and months. That would have to happen in vivo as well. Otherwise, the tissue will disappear. So it's, it's, it, it, it's very complex, both in terms of biology, but also uh, engineering. Um, but, but, you know, it's a, it's a nice challenge to, to think about. So just as a kind of a, a different kind of question, so what piece of research have you been involved in that you have found the most exciting and why? I, I think it was, it was really this recent work that we, we have now been able to publish where we see that we can maintain in tissues in vitro for such long periods of time without, we can just leave them there and they maintain themselves. <laughs> 
uh, and we see cells that are normally not found because they can live much longer. You know, you could, the tissue can really mature more. It, uh, that is certainly a, that was a highlight to see this this type of of development is possible in vitro. I mean, that's that's still uh, amazing, right? And then the other area that my lab is active in is is related to to completely different organoids that we could call. Um, embryoids or, or gastroloids, where you start with pluripotent stem cells and you, you try to push them to go through gastrulation process to generate uh, at least parts of an embryo to, 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 to develop the whole body plan of, a, of an embryo, you know, in terms of axial development. There, I'm also, anytime we do an experiment, I'm just surprised what type of cells are generated. So you know, there's a the tremendous, you know, push for for of the cells to to really build the tissue. I mean, they they know how to do it. So you just need to have the right, let's say, permissive environment to allow it to happen. You know, in that sense, you know, at some point you don't need any engineering because the, the if you have the right cells and the right environment, they will make the whole thing. And and I'm always surprised when you know when we do these experiments with these embryonic organoids, how in vivo like they are in terms of cell types that we find at some later stages. For instance, we have done some work on trying to see whether whether these uh, tissues can generate heart embryonic heart-like structures, and it's remarkable. All the right progenitors are there; they're moving to the right places. They they have interactions with other germ layer so it's it is it is really incredible yeah that's an interesting way you kind of phrase the problem as well as that it's you know the cell knows what to do almost it's just a matter of finding the right conditions to get it to behave the way you want it to um so how do you go about kind of deciding what to try next it's difficult you know now that you have we have spent so much time and many years in building a system we almost have to use it right and to try to see you know what can we do that otherwise cannot be done in terms of disease modeling for instance um so there's some obvious i would say obvious targets for us to to go after but i think this whole area of of uh, modeling early embryogenesis is is different because there it's completely open what you can get i think there's still many many surprises that we'll we'll see and will come in the in the in the next years um obviously many people are very passionate about really studying biology because because they're much easier to access compared to a, uh, an embryo a real embryo and uh, you know you can do experiments that you could never do with embryos that's what attracts many developmental biologists i'm I, I'm also extremely fascinated about that, but another aspect is very, I'm very intrigued about, and that is to try to see whether you can generate specialized cell types um, that are normally not, cannot be derived in a normal culture because you grow cells in the completely wrong context. You grow them in 2D, you grow, you know, what if, 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 if the cell is generated by an in vivo-like organogenesis process where the cell has, you know, the progenitors have interacted with the right other cell types. Would this, 
would this end up in a, in a cell type that has a lot more potency, has a lot more function? You can think about the, you know, a beta cell or a blood stem cell. What if you could generate a, a system like an embryo to derive such, you know, very difficult to grow cell types? That's, that's, a, that's a question that I'm, I'm interested in. Yeah, that sounds like a very interesting and potential kind of future application if you start from, you know, understanding kind of early development, how far can we go in terms of the cells that we're able to generate, um, obviously using kind of development as a blueprint for that. Yes, exactly. Nicely summarised, yes. So it'd be great to hear a little bit more about your career progression, especially because um, you started out in the kind of materials engineering and have come to have such a biological focus. So how did that happen and what advice do you have to researchers who may also be looking to span multiple fields? Yeah, I was always, I think, you know, my father is a biology teacher, so maybe there is something that I, uh, he gave me when I was a, <laughs> a small kid that, that uh, never disappeared, that uh, it's a, a certain fascination for biology that was always there, even though I studied engineering. And to some extent, it was certainly a frustration that I had when I started to work on regenerative medicine problems, because we developed, you know, beautiful technology to try to grow bone, damaged bone or skin. And we didn't really know what was going on in, 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 the, in, in, in biology, right? I mean, some cells went there and they started to regenerate the tissue but we hadn't absolutely no clue and that frustrated me after my phd and i tried to see you know whether but i could learn you know some stem cell biology because that's so you can start to understand what you're actually doing and so i uh, moved to a lab where i was exposed to only biology where i was kind of the only engineer which was interesting for sure um, and then when i started my own group i tried to really you know bring these fields together. So I hired very good biologists and, and engineers in the same team. So we can, we can really be at the interface. And I think biology just has the most fascinating questions and problems to, to address. I absolutely agree. So what advice would you give? So you said you kind of touched upon the fact that you were the only engineer in a stem cell lab. So what advice would you have to someone who might be in a similar position or, you know, looking to go into a new field? What advice would you have to kind of help support them in getting the most out of that dynamic and that relationship? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm convinced that if you want to do bioengineering, you have to understand a certain level of biology because otherwise it's it's pointless. And and to do that, you need to challenge yourself. I mean, you need to go out there and get challenged by the people who are experts. That's what I did. But, you know, I think it's becoming easier now. I see the students that we educate here. They are really amazing. I mean, they have training in engineering and in computational you know, thinking and biology. They have everything. So they are in a much better position to to. to go into interface type of research. It's, it has become easy, easier, I think. Nonetheless, you know, I think having real life training in biology as an engineer is very beneficial. So you have seen it, you know what the questions are, what the, the tools are. 
I think that has been very in interesting and important for for my own for my own research. Even though I cannot help, you know, if if one of my biology you know postdocs comes to me, I cannot troubleshoot when they have problems in doing Western blotting or something like that. You know, that's not the type of level of detail that I can I'm competent in. I think it's more about concepts. Um, understanding problems and, and that's that's i think is, is is more important so your lab has been hugely successful in terms of publications but you've also produced several patents and commercialized products what is your motivation to branch into the kind of more commercial industrial space and how does this complement your research yeah you know if you work at the technical university as i do you know swiss federal institute of technology you're paid by the taxpayer, right? It's you paid by the government. So you have, I think if you, if you do technology development, you, you have a responsibility uh, or almost an obligation to at least try to see whether some of your results, you know, have value in terms of commercialization, meaning that ultimately you, you could, you could be, responsible for generating new jobs. I mean, that would be a huge impact you, you would have through the work, which, which would be something you give back to the, to the society, to the, you know, to the country because they pay your research. So in that sense, I feel, I, I, I feel I'm, I'm driven somehow by this application of, of, of the results that, that we have. Not it doesn't make sense all the time to do something like that to write a patent, but if there is potential, I think one should at least uh, try to explore it. Um, and that's what uh, what we have done. And and, and now I, I see my role more as somebody somebody who can help. You know, uh, you know, students or postdocs from the lab who are really want to become entrepreneurs. I can I can help them to 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 move in that direction. And I think it's uh, it's gratifying to to see to see you uh, know uh, that some of the things we do have uh, a real life uh, application. I think it's it's exciting. Absolutely, yeah, I, I agree. Um, so just on our final question, um, so outside of the lab, do you have any kind of hobbies or activities that keep you sane? And how do you manage to balance these with what must be a pretty full on schedule? Yeah, I mean, I, I I had a lot. I mean, I still have uh, hobbies. Of course, I like I love outdoor sports, all kinds of sports, windsurfing, climbing, mount, mountain biking, etc. Uh, the problem, the only uh, small problem, is that I have also kids at home. So, <laughs> so some of my hobbies, uh, the time that I dedicate to these hobbies, uh, has has uh, diminished. Um, a bit over the last few years, but nonetheless, I'm, I'm a strong believer that you need to think about that and, and make sure that you have you can balance this, you know, because uh, yeah, otherwise you get you get crazy, as you as you said. So thank you so much again um, for joining us for the stem cells at lunch digested podcast today. It's been excellent to talk to you and hear about you and your work. And thank you for listening. Pleasure. Thank you very much for having me.